Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. We shall continue and hopefully finish looking at the reign of Henry III with a special reference to the Barons' Revolt, and in particular these documents emanate called, usually called the Provisions of Oxford, okay, from June 1258. Now, uh, you've got one to share there, and I can see some orange ink, so someone's actually had a go at reading it. That's fantastic. Hopefully only the English. There is French and Latin mixed in there, but... Um, and I... Now, Azra, you said you don't have your copy. And that's kind of my original one, you see that. And Bruchin, uh, yes, okay. So, did you have a chance to read it? Right, okay. So, I'm hoping for a few comments. Uh, let's see how we get on. So, basically, we'll kind of follow this chronology through. And then at this point, or here specifically, we'll have a look at uh, the provisions themselves. Then we'll sort of finish the story uh, thereafter. Okay, just to briefly recapitulate, we were looking at the events of 1216 to 17 last time. What's the situation? Can anyone remind me what's the kind of main situation during that period? What's going on in terms of Henry? for those who were here. It's his succession. It's the first year or so of his reign. And England is still in the middle of a civil war and an invasion by the French. And it's, uh, his father dies in the middle of this. John dies, as we said. Henry is, has some supporters, most significantly William Marshall, very famous guy. Uh, and he is crowned king, kind of badly, uh, at Gloucester. And there are various attempts to support his claim, uh, including uh, Magna Carta being ish reissued. Okay, And then gradually the war against the uh, rebelling uh, noblemen and the French forces of Prince Louis are defeated. And we have the final uh, peace treaty, so to speak, uh, the Treaty of Lambeth here, where... Uh, Louis renounces any claim to the English uh, throne and depart, gradually subsequently departs and things kind of settle down. So then we move into the next phase of his reign and his reign tends to fall into a series of kind of phases uh, which I've marked here 1217 to 1223 or 1227, we'll explain what we, what we mean by that, his minority. And minority, what does that mean? Again, I think we asked this question last time. But if you are a minor, you are 
anyone remember? Or if you are not here, anyone know? Right. Why? Why do you need someone to support you? Because he was uh, only eight. Yes, eight or nine or something. He was too young to rule independently as king. Okay. He just wanted to play with uh, toys or something like that. Uh, and obviously, uh, he couldn't be relied upon to make uh, sort of uh, grown-up decisions and so on. So a minority is a period, politically speaking, uh, for a king or a queen when. Uh, they cannot rule themselves, so someone else, sometimes a close relative, uh, uh, becomes regent and acts on their behalf. Uh, and this is the period uh, of his minority. At the beginning, William Marshall, who is this leading uh, knight figure and famous figure, uh, is the regent. Uh, but early on, after a couple of years, he dies, okay, because he's quite old. And this effectively passes power to Hubert de Burg, who uh, had a number of important positions, but most importantly, he was Justicier, who is kind of second in command uh, and uh, the person who gets to make all the decisions when the king is away and so on. So this shifts things towards this guy, and that's quite important. After a few years, Oh yes, and in 1220, okay, they finally managed to arrange a proper coronation. So now at Westminster and so on, with all the necessary uh, conditions, he's recrowned because it's suggested that his original coronation soon after his father's death was kind of invalid. Uh, so uh, that's an important way of kind of re-establishing his, uh, his position. In 1223, he technically reaches 16 now, so he is officially... Uh, uh, no longer a minor, um, but for most purposes, uh, Hugh, the influence of Hugh de Burr and others continues for a few more years. So although 1223 is legally the point when you can say he's no longer a minor, uh, he's still under uh, significant influence for a few more years, so he's not really ruling independently at that point. De Burr uh, had married King John's widow, so he was kind of like the uh, stepfather uh, to the young king, so that's quite important kind of personal thing. And he was amassing more and more power, and as a result, he got more and more enemies, because usually people with lots of power are resented by others, whether they use it or rightly or wrongly, uh, people resent that. So there was a growing potential uh, political movement against this man and the power that he was uh, wielding. During this time, things get more or less re-established in terms of the administration of the country and so on. Uh, in terms of administration of justice and things like that, from the kind of chaos uh, at the end of John's reign and the early uh, years of Henry's reign. So it is a, a positive time in that sense. So finally, in 1227, we have a, a first stage, in a sense, in when uh, um, Henry uh, asserts himself and this leads to his period of what we're calling personal rule, where he was ruling personally. He didn't have to depend on other people. Um, I don't know whether Azra wants to practice her Latin or not. Quo warranto, med medieval Latin there, because that's not a... Quo, quo warranto. What case could we be dealing with here? Quo, quo warrant, by which warrant, or why what warrant, okay. 
ablative. It's a kind of proclamation uh, made on behalf of the king saying anyone who claims to have land and other things granted to them, given to them uh, by royal charter, by therefore Henry earlier or by his predecessors in effect, uh, the, their claims are in theory being challenged and they must show by what warrant, quo warranto, by what way, by what guarantee uh, they have that land. So they have to show their documents in effect and support their claim to have this land or that land. So what's going on here is in effect Henry and his sort of immediate uh, supporters are challenging people's claims and so saying you know that that wasn't proper rule I was only then a minor now I'm in charge I'm the boss and so I want anything that was done before to be examined again it doesn't mean we'll deny you your land but uh, it's a kind of statement of, uh, of of their position at that point that we are taking control so anything that happened before may or may not be acceptable okay so that's an important kind of proclamation or, or, or movement forward The early years of his rule personally leads to the fall, the uh, decline in power of Hubert de Burgh uh, for various reasons. We've already said that he had enemies uh, abroad and so on. Uh, firstly, in 1230, Henry wanted to invade France. Remember that uh, the English kings have lost uh, all their land in the north of France, they still have some stuff down in the south, uh, but in the north they've lost Gascony, yeah, but they've lost uh, what's going on in the north, so he wants to, uh, he, he tries to invade to reassert his position. Uh, Hubert de Burgh kind of is against the idea of invasion, and the whole thing kind of fails and falls apart, and then Henry blames Hubert for this, thinks that it's kind of partly Hubert's fault that it didn't work out. So there's, there's a rift between Henry and his chief advisor and supporter in that sense. And various other things going on at this time, uh, for which some people are blaming or saying Hubert de Burgh was responsible for that. Hi, come in, come in. And you even get accusations of witchcraft made against Hubert de Burgh. I mean, ridiculous claims of people making uh, claims against him and things like that, defaming his uh, personality. 1232, Henry and his close supporters are able to push Hubert de Burgh from the office of Justicia. Okay, so he's finally pushed out. Uh, his direct position and then his uh, general position are undermined and a new justicia is appointed called Peter, well, I guess he was called Pierre Desroches. Okay. Now, the important thing about him is that he was a Poitevin, Poitevin which means from Poitou. Okay. And a number of people uh, from France seem to get power uh, under Henry at this time and quite a lot of them seem to have come from this uh, Poitevin group and that leads to a new problem, that leads to a growing resentment which I've called here anti-foreigner movement. So he gets rid of Hubert de Burgh, he brings in some of his French friends uh, and for a while there's an attempt to undermine those people, to, to remove the, this feeling that somehow foreigners are involved. 
We must remember, of course, that we're not that far away from the Norman Conquest and uh, what people would think of today as kind of these are British or these are English and those are foreigners was very different than the way that people thought then. And uh, French was still the main language of the court and so on. Uh, and uh, the kings of England and their supporters were, to a large extent, still Frenchmen in a way, even if their French lands were reduced. Uh, so uh, the for anti foreigner movement wasn't just purely a kind of racist or whatever it was, nationalist thing. There would be other uh, concerns, political concerns going on mixed in with that as well. So then we get. Uh, and a, even a small rebellion uh, against uh, these guys, including one of the main leaders was Richard the Marshal, who was son of William Marshall, uh, Henry's old uh, uh, regent. Um, and this eventually is, uh, has some success. Uh, Peter de Roche uh, and some others are pushed out of power uh, by uh, 1235, though some of them get back into power about a year later, though he doesn't. Uh, he's one example where he's not so successful. So there is a brief uh, success in this. Then Henry also marries um, Eleanor of Provence, which then brings in some more French people uh, and uh, beyond into, um, into the English situation. So the foreigner thing isn't kind of completely, completely removed. So from about 1235 until the end of the 1250s, Henry's position is fairly strong, okay? And this is the period particularly when he can uh, rule uh, the country and so on and rule quite well up to a point. Then towards the end of that period, we, things begin to break down and uh, particularly because of this event called the Sicilian business. Henry had made a number of attempts to invade France, we mentioned in 1230 and also in 1242, I think it's the right year, and both of these had failed. So now he decides to reassert himself uh, through more clever means by diplomacy and setting up links with various people. And what happens is he gets into this negotiation in the 1250s uh, with the Pope and he says, okay, I'll give you money and regular money as well, and will supply some English troops to the Pope uh, for your activities and so on, if you will uh, promise to recognize my son Edmund, so this isn't the guy who becomes king, a different son, as uh, king of Sicily and Apulia. Now, where are they? Where, everyone knows where Sicily is. Where is Sicily? Yeah, it's the island. If you think of Sicily, Italy as a kind of you know, leg with a foot, and then Sicily is the football that it's kicking, whatever. And Apulia is southern region, in the, uh, not quite parallel to Sicily, but in the south of Italy. And at that time, they were kind of connected. Okay. And um, this is an attempt to kind of further his claims and his family's claims and so on. And it might, it's perhaps not quite so crazy as it might seem to us at the time. But this agreement involved a lot of money being promised to the Pope and troops being sent out. And naturally the noblemen in England, lots of them thought, this isn't a good idea. We don't want to be spending our, sending our money on some crazy plan 
uh, for the king and we don't want to be sending large amounts of troops out because then we don't have uh, a way of defending ourselves in a sense and what is Henry doing here is he being a bit crazy and so on so there is a growing pressure on him to reduce the terms and things like that and already it provides the basis for what becomes the Baron's Revolt because there is this sense of the king is perhaps taking things too far so they negotiate under pressure a kind of reduction of these terms but uh, then things fall apart so the whole matter uh, uh, ceases to be so important. So this brings us to uh, the next phase which is what we're calling the Barons Revolt, sometimes called the Second Barons War uh, and then that leads to effectively as we can see civil war as well. Okay, and This takes us from uh, 1258 down to 1266 or even 1267 really before things are finally completely tied up. So we've got political problems in England. In this case we mentioned the Sicilian business as we called it. Okay. At that time there were serious economic problems going on and okay, I don't always like to uh, generalize about history but it's interesting that many of the greatest kind of revolutions uh, in the past, however, uh, that ones we can understand from the past uh, few centuries or so, uh, often take place in a context of economic or financial problems. Okay? If people are fairly full, if they're getting food regularly in their stomachs, then if the king or whatever the government is is being bad, people are not so concerned okay but when they're hungry and when their children are crying or something like that then they begin to become a little bit more politically active so I'm not saying this is necessarily the case here and we're not talking about popular revolution but again contributing to the context was a degree of famine and uh, a lack uh, in England and elsewhere at that time uh, which then mixed in with the political problems may have pushed certain people uh, in a certain way so what we get is 12 confederates, 12 noblemen, uh, sorry, seven, on the 12th of April, seven confederates meeting together, uh, nominally but increasingly under the leadership of a man called Simon de Montfort, who was Earl of Leicester, so quite an important figure, and also was uh, at this time, or round about this time, also was the king's governor uh, in Gascony, so he had responsibilities there. And these seven noblemen get together and swear an oath. What is an oath? What's that mean? An oath. A kind of promise, okay? Uh, and this is a mutual oath, so it's I promise to you and you're promising to me or to everyone else. I'm promising to the six of you and you're all doing the same thing. So it's a, a mutual oath, okay, uh, basically to stand and support each other, okay, unless they, with the exception that they're not going to undermine their fealty, their faithfulness to the king, but then how you define that obviously uh, is up to you to some extent, but uh, without undermining that they're promising to support each other and stand by each other and be mates and so on and things like that. Okay? And this kind of marks the first step, perhaps, in this process of the Baron's Revolt. On the 30th of April, a little bit later, a couple of weeks later, 
these guys meet the king at Westminster and uh, more or less uh, press him to uh, join them, to swear uh, the oath, okay, and um, to get rid of some of the foreigners that are involved in supporting him. So, so they're claiming that it's, uh, we're getting rid of the foreigners so that we can have our true king back or something like that. And uh, Henry and his son Edward, the future king, uh, are, well, they haven't got much of a choice and they agree and swear this oath as well. They become one of these confederates. In May, 2nd of May, Henry then, under pressure from these guys, says there's going to be some kind of reform and they're going to have a meeting, they can even call it a parliament, in Oxford. Okay? And this is what we have in June. The 9th of June, they, we have these documents called the Provisions of Oxford issued, which is what we've got here. Now, guys, you came late. Do you have your copy of this I gave last week? I've run out of spare copies, so you're going to have to kind of squeeze up over here and we'll have a look at these things, okay? This document represents the ideas and plans of Simon de Montfort and his supporters and they are fairly or relatively kind of radical in what they're proposing, okay? Um, strangely enough, even today, although England is a democracy, Britain is a democracy, we don't really have a proper constitution, okay, set out formally in the way that most modern democracies do. And this is kind of the first attempt, perhaps, at drawing up, ignoring Magna Carta or whatever, but this is the first very formal way of organising uh, constitutional arrangements and controls and so on. And it goes a lot further to some extent than we've seen with Magna Carta. Uh, I don't think we need to go through the whole document point by point, but we can drop and look in at a few points here and there. But um, there are some very, very general points, some very, very important issues that we can kind of highlight, I think, uh, repeating things. A lot of people in this get power through what we would call election. Okay? They're chosen, uh, selected by uh, other people. So it's not the basis of necessarily of birth or land or something like that, but there is an element of election. I think also it tries to provide in its arrangements a sense of balance. So it's trying to avoid too much power in one person or one group of people. You have kind of two sides that keep a check on what the others are doing or not doing as well. And we'll look at that in a bit more detail in a minute. People in power have that power in many cases for fixed terms. So it's not when the king decides that you can't be chancellor anymore, but you are chancellor for one year, for example, and at the end of that year you have to uh, provide some kind of accountability for what you're doing. So people don't have unlimited uh, power uh, over time. There are fixed terms in what they can do. Okay? There are various attempts to prevent what we would call bribery. What is bribery? Yeah, hang on. You can't explain the word bribery by saying you bribe someone. That's the yeah. same. Yeah, come on, think, come on. Someone help him. Bribing is what? 
giving money to an official illegally. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ezra. You answered my question through bribery or something. Yes. Um, getting what you want by uh, giving something to someone else and then obviously then putting them potentially in a, in a compromising position. Okay. Uh, obviously, it still goes on in a large part of the world today, but it's something which is not desirable or whatever. Okay. Um, and obviously, in a situation, a medieval government situation, okay, where people were perhaps not as, they didn't have as much integrity as we do today in terms of what we do with our office, then uh, if you said, oh, I'll give you uh, some money, then you can make sure I get what I want and things like that. Okay? So it's, there was a number of points where bribery is trying to be removed from the way things uh, are doing. They try and set up in a sense, a number of, a couple of regulatory bodies. Groups of people, overlapping groups of people in these cases, which uh, to some extent are independent from the king and can control the king and what his officials are doing. We have the council and we have the use specifically of the word parliament. And we might have time to look at how these are chosen in a minute. Okay, so setting up groups of people who are therefore controlling what's going on. Okay, so it's not the king at the top, he's also got some uh, controls over him. And it allows for majority decisions. Even if every single one member does not agree, then the majority uh, can agree, or if everyone's not there, as long as the majority, more than 50%, are present, their decision is valid. Okay, and again, that's something we find very familiar: the concept of majority today. Okay, so all these are kind of general themes that seem to appear, I think, in the provisions of Oxford. Okay, let's look at the start then. The first most important thing is they have this group of 24 men in the same parliament at Oxford 24 men were elected 12 from the king's side and as many from the community side there's a footnote here which says in fact these 12 24 people were probably chosen earlier not actually at the meeting at Oxford but that's not so important for us so we have the king and let's call it the commune, somehow these representation of the community of England, okay. And this gives us 24, okay, 24 people. And they are the kind of core for creating, uh, I've rubbed it out now, the um, council and the parliament and so on. They're the kind of centre of that and their job is to kind of look over things. But they're not saying the king doesn't have any influence here because he can send, he's choosing 12 of his supporters, okay, which is perhaps uh, important as well. Okay, the next page 99, we have stuff to do with county courts, shire courts. We can perhaps ignore that for now. If we go to page 101, 101, so two pages later. Okay, here we have the names of the guys chosen. Elected, 
on the king's side and elected on the earl's and baron's side, okay, as it says there. Uh, oddly enough, though, uh, I think there's only 11 names on the king's side rather than 12. And then if we look at the end of clause 3, here it says, and if it should happen that any of these by necessity cannot be present, the rest of them shall choose anyone whom they will be... Uh, whom they will to be the substitute necessary in place of the absentee. So if there is not a full 12, the remaining 10 or 11, whatever it is, can then elect someone else, choose someone else for that meeting, for that uh, process to represent them. So there must be, in theory, this 24, total of 24. Okay. Then we have a series of oaths. Okay, let's just look at the first one, uh, number four. Okay, this is the oath of the community, which is more or less what these confederates uh, swore. We, so-and-so, which means whatever name, okay, cause all people to know that we have sworn on the Holy Gospel, on the touching the Bible, and by that oath are bound together and promise in good faith that each of us and all together will help each other and our people against all men. Okay, so this is the basic idea, just supporting uh, ourselves, that we will do justice and take nothing that we cannot do without doing wrong, saving our fealty, our faith, uh, to the king and the crown. Okay, but obviously we have to uh, follow our promise, uh, to the, uh, our promise of fealty to the king. So this is their very basic broad oath, just we're going to support each other uh, and that's it. Okay. Uh, and then there's a separate oath for the 24 guys here, okay? And their basic job, it says, is the reform and redress of the state of the realm. So their main purpose is to uh, protect uh, and reform the kingdom of the problems it has. And then we have a series of oaths by the Justicia, the Chancellor, uh, Castellans, people in charge of castles, okay? Interestingly enough, uh, for the Justicia and the Chancellor, it says they will not do something, promise not to do something uh, that goes against what the 24 want. So they have to follow what the 24 uh, uh, members are, are, are requiring. So they're still very important. These are important officials, but uh, they don't have so much power. Okay, now page 105, number 9 at the top there. Here we have, and we have to maybe jump forward later on, we have uh, the choosing the king's councils, the people who will be advising and working with the king. Okay. And it's quite a complicated process here. This is 15 people who will make up uh, the council. And it says, if we look here, after the list of names, it says, the 12 on the king's side these 12, okay, half of the 24, have chosen from the 12 on the community side, Earl Roger the Marshal and uh, Hugh Bigod. And the community side have chosen from the 12 on the king's side, the Earl of Warwick and John Mansell. So they've chosen four people. Now what's going on here? Can you understand this? It's rather interesting, again, way of trying to provide balances and checks to prevent one power, one side getting too much power or the other. What's the process here of choosing these four people, the names they give, because these four people are quite important as well. Are they forming the king's council? 
this is the beginning process. These are the four people that we're choosing now will be the ones who will select the King's Council of 15. But choosing these four important people has got an interesting process. If we read it again slowly, we might see. Okay. The, uh, the 12 on the King's side have chosen from the 12 on the community side, Roger and Hugh. Okay. Other side, yeah. So, okay, I'm the king, and you're all you're the other guys. You're the barons or whatever, okay. And obviously, we've got a certain difference and tension. And I've got twelve people who are my friends, who are my supporters. They're my twelve, okay. Now I could just choose the two guys from my twelve who I think would support me the most, okay. But then you might not like that because you'll just say, oh, they're just his friends or whatever. So I don't get to choose my two people to go forward. You choose from my two. But by the same hand, the other side of the medallion, as you say, you can't send your two to be part of it. I choose from, what, from you the two. Okay? So there's a, there's, again, it's this balancing of power and so on. So two from here, but chosen by these, and two from here, but chosen by that side. Okay? to create these four uh, important figures, okay? And we get the names in this case. And I think if we jump forward to, yes, page 111, so almost the last page, 23 at the bottom, we come back to this now, okay? Fifteen shall be nominated by these four, and there are the names we had before, who have been chosen by the twenty-four to nominate the fifteen who are to be the king's council. So from the twenty-four, four of them are selected, but the, the way we said, and these four, representing the two sides, get to choose fifteen people who will make up the king's council. Okay. You might think that's unnecessarily complicated, but you can see the principle of kind of, as I said, checks and balances and controls over that. And the king's council is very important uh, and should be working closely with the king. And this, uh, and they will still report back and tell the 24 what they're doing and things like that. Okay. And then we move on. Number 10, so we go back to page 105 now. We're going to set up gradually the idea of Parliament now. So number 10, these are the 12 who are chosen by the barons to negotiate at the three parliaments each year with the, with the King's Council on behalf of the whole community of the land in the common business. So... The King's Council plus another 12, if I've got this right, will form the Parliament. Okay? And we come back to that one later on. So it again represents people from the Baron's side, the Commune, but also people who are working more closely with the King. Different perspectives and things like that. Okay? More checks and balances. And they give the names there and so on. Okay, jumping forward again, keeping an eye on the time because it's going very quickly. Um, 
Okay, we mentioned the officers here and so on. Okay, we've got on the next page 107. Uh, they say they're going to reform the church. And then they talk about the justicia, or justicias, but there's a chief justicia, has power for one year and then has to be accountable. The same for uh, treasurer and exchequer and chancellor and so on. The same ideas, as I said, about fixed terms being described there. We won't go into all this, but controlling and making sure that one person can't get too much power and so forth. And we get more about bribery and, and so on. And the sheriffs on page 109, number 17. Sheriffs, who are they? I don't remember who a sheriff is. We mentioned them. Shire Reeves, the representatives of the shires or the counties and so on. Okay, we go back to Anglo-Saxon times with these people. And again, they've got a fixed term and they're answerable, they're accountable for what's going on. and They should not be taking bribes and things like that. Again, these local officials, even to the very local level, are being controlled. Number 19, page 111, so our last big page again, finish off here. Concerning the Mint of London... Be it noted to reform the mint. What's the mint? Do you know? Mint, it doesn't mean nane. Nane, not that kind of na uh, mint. I like to make uh, ezogelin soup. I put lots of mint in it. It's one of my favourite things. Lentils and uh, mint. Coins, that's right. It's the word in English, I don't know what the Turkish is, but it's the institution place where coins are minted. Okay, that's the technical term for making coins, is minting them, and so on. And obviously that's very important, because that's where money comes from. And what the Tur what's the Turkish word? The institution or the factory. Well, kind of it's both in a way. Yeah, right, okay. Darphane. Okay, yeah, Hane Hane uh, from Persian. Okay, I'll try and remember that. Uh, and then number 20... Uh, be it noted to reform the household of the king and queen. Now that's going very far. Okay, this is the personal retinue and following of the king. And we go, we, we looked at these and we went, talked about the reign of Henry uh, I. And many of the offices of government emerged out of the household, but it's the personal sort of uh, court round the king. So that's quite an extreme claim to be making. Okay, then we get parliaments. 21. Be it noted that the 24 have decreed that there shall be three parliaments every year. And then we get the date set out. Okay. To these three parliaments, jump ahead a bit, shall come the elected councillors of the king, even if they be not summoned, to review the state of the realm and deal with the common business of the realm and the king together, and at other times by the king's summons when need shall be. So, What's this saying? How many parliaments do we have to have? Three. Three times on fixed times in the year, and the king can call or summons parliaments at other times. Okay, there can be more than three, but there has to be three. Okay. And then we go return, as we just said, to the process of, of choosing and so on and things like that, and we see how it's put together, okay, from the twelve and things like that. So as you can see from these provisions, quite radical, in addition to the threats to be reforming the church, the mint and the household and so on, putting in these formal structures to regulate what's going on and to obviously ultimately to remove power from the king and to make the king accountable and so on, in addition to his officers, his representatives uh, and so on. So uh, for the medieval period, quite a significant or extreme plan. And 
initially, Henry is pretty much uh, forced to accept this. Okay, he has to accept these provisions. But later on, he rejects these, and the Pope says, you were forced to accept them, so you don't have to actually uh, accept this. Henry spends some of 1289, 1259 to 60 in France, and of course he's not in England, so he's not there doing the government, and so you can't really make everything work because the king's not there, okay? It's like you could all be here, and if I don't turn up, you can't have a class, okay? So deliberately by staying away, he's undermining what they're doing, what they're, what they're trying to do in a sense, among other things. And during this time as well, we get the beginnings of divisions amongst the rebel barons. Simon de Montfort and some of the others are very radical, very extreme. Some other guys are saying, oh, I think we've gone far enough, and then they start to disagree and argue. So you get the beginnings of splits, okay, which will then lead to the Civil War. 1264, 23rd of January, this meeting, or a series of meetings, at the Mies of Amiens, uh, they get the King of France, Louis, our old friend, and he agrees to act as arbitrator, to sort out the disagreements between Henry and the barons, and particularly Henry and Simon de Montfort. And Henry and Simon say, okay, you can be arbitrator, you can sort this out. Who's right, who's wrong, what should we do? And each case, each side presents their case. They explain what they think has been happening and what should happen. And Louis, not surprisingly, given that he's a king, comes out in favour of Henry. He doesn't say everything is perfect about Henry, I don't think, but more or less he says, provisions of Oxford, all this radical stuff, it's not right, okay? And of course, Simon and his friends don't accept this decision uh, but lying down, and that leads, that's the beginning of the Civil War. So we have the Second Barons' War fighting, okay? Quite early on, Henry himself is captured by Simon, okay? Uh, and then over the following months, the battles go one way or the other. We don't have to go into all the details here. But eventually, uh, Prince Edward, the future king, defeats the rebels in a significant battle at Evesham, and Simon de Montfort himself is killed. Okay, so the main leader of the rebel barons is gone. Things kind of disappear gradually from then on for a few months. It's not the end of the Civil War completely, but it's the sort of beginning of the end. And then 1266, 31st of October, there is some, a document produced called the Dictum of Kenilworth, okay, because it happened at Kenilworth. There had been a big siege against rebels at Kenilworth, and they finally uh, capitulate. And um, this is the final victory for Henry. Finally, all of the provisions of Oxford and all the other similar things that have happened afterwards are rejected, and the re rebel barons uh, are either kind of punished or they have to pay a lot of money uh, to get some lands back. The king has taken all their lands because they've been defeated and uh, those who are only slightly rebellious only have to pay a little bit and those who are very, very rebellious have to pay a lot in order to be pardoned and to get their lands back and so on. And there's still a bit of fighting going on for a little bit further into 1267 but the Dictum of Kenilworth kind of marks the final kind of stage and royal government is finally uh, re-established. And then Unfortunately, but fortunately, uh, in a sense, uh, a few years later, Henry dies, okay, and he's quite old by this point, he dies, uh, and uh, so he's at the last minute, really, in those last uh, couple of, decade and a half of his reign, he's re-established fairly strong royal government and power, which gives the basis for his son, Edward, 
Edward I to be a very, very strong king, okay, and he has a, a rather different situation. He picks up on some of the things that his father's done and builds on that. And we've heard a little bit from Genghis's presentation about uh, Edward and Scotland. And what we'll do on uh, Thursday is talk about Edward as king and talk about what he does in Wales as well, where he conquers Wales. It's the end of, of Welsh independence, so quite a big development in terms of British history. Okay, let's stop there. Um, guys, do we have draft essays? Yes, good, all right. Uh, so I think that's, I think that's, is that everyone? I think that's more or less, Erzge is going to give me back hers tomorrow because she's flying back today. Uh, I shall try and read the essays and the drafts uh, and give you some feedback next Tuesday in class. So although it's the last day and I'm sure you'll all be hoping to escape or something, please come uh, to the class. We may not do a formal lecture, we may be finished by then, but I can give you your feedback and then if you want to see me in separately in my office we can fix a time to discuss so that we can make sure these are all good essays, not bad ones. Okay, thank you very much. See you in two days time. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.